0: Welcome to the real estate investing made simple podcast, the show empowering and educating people on how they can grow, manage and protect their wealth through real estate investing. Now, here's your host, Bailey Kramer.
1: What's going on, everyone and welcome back to another episode of the real estate investing made simple podcast. Today we have another awesome guest, He's a multifamily investor and self-storage investor. His name is Steven Libman. Welcome to the show, Steven. Thanks, Bailey. Appreciate it, man. Thanks for yeah, having me. Su- super excited to have you on. And this is our first time meeting face-to-face over Zoom. So I was getting a little bit of, of your story before we chatted. Didn't want to give away too much before we started recording. But why don't you go ahead and start with kind of your background, how you got into real estate, because I know you're doing some crazy awesome things now. But let's kind of take it back to the beginning for the listeners.
0: Yeah. So I graduated from Boston University in 2004 and then I dabbled in a couple of sales roles and I ended up being a real estate agent. My sister-in-law opened up an agency and I started as an agent during the downturn. So I was finding some off-market like bank-owned properties for people to flip and worked with a bunch of investors, got my broker's license and you know, quick story, the uh, the guy who I, I got like six or seven houses under contract for him to flip one year. And at the closing table, this guy held my feet to the fire on a, uh, you know, a pool ladder that went missing. He was like, this is going to cost me like 300 bucks. You got to take it out of your commission. <laughs> Meanwhile, I made this guy probably a million bucks that year in flips. And I did, I took it out of my commission. I came home. I told my wife, I said, you know, I think I'm done doing this. I think I'm the one finding the deals and I think I can flip a house. So I think we're going to try to do that. And I'm super grateful to that guy because his uh, neurotic narcissism gave me the violent shove that I needed to get into this business myself. And um, so me and my business partner, Travis started a basically a wholesale business um, where we would take a contract and we flip that contract for a profit. And you know, we, uh, we would have bounced the first thousand dollar deposit check. If the title company would have cashed it in time (laughs) for our first deal, you know, and that's the truth. The, uh, fact is that business was born, you know, with uh, a business plan, but no financial backing. We took down our first deal. We wholesaled that project for 16,000 bucks. We split the profits and we were like, Hey, this could work. And, uh, that was 11 and a half years ago. And <laughs> fast forward to today, where we own about $150 million worth of commercial assets. We don't flip houses anymore. We don't wholesale houses anymore. We'll get into the reasons for that um, later. But that that's been that's the very condensed version. You know, a lot of lessons learned, a lot of uh, kicks in the teeth over over the years where you know, we've had our ups and downs and had to learn a lot through, you know, what it looked like to be an entrepreneur, what it looked like to be a business owner, what it looked like to create teams and systems and processes. But, you know, at the very beginning, it was real estate agent. Now, you know, we have um, almost a couple hundred million dollars in assets.
1: That's awesome. Really cool story. And it's, it's cool to see you start out on kind of one end and just trying different roles within the industry and different asset classes and kind of just working your way up and in kind of different different avenues which is just super cool. So let's fast forward to when you were pretty much finishing up the, the old stuff you're doing with the single family and the wholesaling, what year did that end up? How did that wrap up and why did you transition to what you're doing now with the commercial stuff?
0: Yeah, so house flipping and wholesaling, I mean, I, I put them in the same bucket, right? The residential space. Yeah is, um, it's highly transactional, right? It's highly taxed because it's ordinary income tax and it's really a cash eating machine. You constantly are raising capital or bringing your own capital back into a deal. And at one point when we were wholesaling 15 to 20 contracts a month, we were spending nearly $60,000 a month in marketing. Wow. Right. That was before payroll before other expenses. So it was, um, And like I said, just very transactional. So, and we did that from 2011 to 2018, 2019. Wow. So it's not like we did it for a short period of time. (laughs) The first five years was very much a learning curve. I mean, we only got up to like 16 deals a year. Um, And that was because we, as entrepreneurs, we put ourselves on an island. And we thought that we knew everything. And this was before like the big podcast movement, right? Where all of a sudden we started listening to some podcasts and finding out that there's people out there that are smarter than us and better at doing things. And so we listened to a couple of podcasts from some guys who said they were flipping like a hundred houses a year. This was year five, six in our business already. And uh, we hunted them down online and I got on the phone and we you know, told him we'd pay him for a phone call. And it turns out he had a mastermind. You know, and he had a single-family mastermind where they would teach us the systems and the processes to scale. So in two thousand sixteen, we did sixteen deals. Two thousand seventeen, we did eighty deals. Two thousand nineteen, we did over a hundred, and then we were busting into like the one hundred fifty range. Those were
1: flips, or those wholesales, or a mixture? Both. Okay. Mostly wholesales
0: though. Eighty percent wholesales.
1: Okay. Very cool. And is is that mastermind or coaching program? Is that still relevant? Yeah, yeah. So
0: it's uh it's seven figure flipping. Bill Allen is the he owns that. You can see, I think there's a seven figure flipping podcast, but seven figure flipping does a um a great single family mastermind. So cool. So we started getting around some mentors and trying to figure out okay, so how do we move from this transactional business that's very highly taxed into more of a passive role, right? We're making a little bit of money now. How do we take that active income and turn it into passive income? Like Robert Kiyosaki taught us to do. Um, So we were like, all right, maybe we'll buy some single family rentals. Maybe we'll buy a couple of quads, maybe an Airbnb. Um, And again, just now learning that you could get around people that are smarter than you and further down the road. We didn't do anything until we talked to some people. (laughs) Right. We said, well, what do you guys suggest? You know, do you suggest going in and buying a four unit or a duplex? And, you know, we started to learn. That there are certain asset classes that get significant tax advantages versus residential. So great book, uh, tax-free wealth by Tom Wheelwright. You've got to read that, and then it'll start to show you how different asset classes get advantaged, um, get tax advantaged. So we started recognizing that. Okay, so we don't we don't want a duplex and a quad. We want maybe a thirty unit or a fifty unit, and um, that was kind of. The, the next mindset shift that we had to go through was, well, we don't own anything now. Right. Why would I go buy a 30 unit? And then one of our mentors said, don't bother with a 30 unit, go buy a hundred units. He said, the economies of scale, we eat up the asset and property management where you can hire a good third party managers. And and I was just blown away. Right. I was like, maybe you don't understand. Like I don't own <laughs> anything. How am I going to go buy a hundred unit complex? And You know, again, just getting around people that change your mind uh, set about certain things, about what you can and what you can't accomplish. And so we knew that we could raise a couple million bucks because we were flipping houses and we had a lot of private money. And so we said, well, if we're going to shut down that residential side of the business, we want to make sure that the people that we're working with still can keep their capital deployed. So maybe going bigger isn't a bad idea. And we partnered with an experienced operator who had done uh, a lot of multifamily in the past. And we built a 180,000 square foot ground up self-storage uh, project as our first deal. 14 wow. acres, $12.2 million deal, almost 1183 units. Wow. That was our first uh, <laughs> jump into the commercial space.
1: All right. So I've I got a lot of questions. So, you know, you, 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 you sound, you surround yourself by the right people first and foremost, and that helped you accelerate your flipping business. You got to maybe a a mental plateau where you're like, all right, there's something that's got to be bigger and better for me.
0: We were just tired, to be honest. And I just, I, I want to point it out because there's a lot of people out there teaching some great things about how to create that business. But I always wanted to use that business as a stepping stone to passive income, right? because I don't think there's a financial freedom without passive income. And I don't think, frankly, I don't personally think, and other people could disagree with me, that you'll ever step out of a wholesale or flip business. I think you as the owner will always be tied somehow, some way to day-to-day operations. So unless you can find that perfect COO, but to me, that's a unicorn. I haven't seen it happen. All
1: right, that's fair. That's a a fair assumption. So um, my question was, what you mentioned the education and the mentors that you received for your flipping and the wholesaling side of things. How did you find your commercial uh, investing mentor or group or the people you surrounded, who, who were those core people uh, and, and how do you find them? Yeah.
0: So ours was Sean Kruk. He had about $150 million of assets under management and he, we found each other via social media. We had some friends of friends, and I saw a post of his that he was looking for some money. I reached out to him. I said, maybe I can bring some money. Uh, what's it look like? And then we started having a conversation. We did some you know, checks on each other because we knew some mutual people. But um, yeah, it was really, we were at a single family mastermind event while I saw his post and he was in Jamaica and I messaged him and I said, hey, this looks interesting. What is this? And over the next couple of weeks, we flew down to Florida, we walked the site, we raised $4 million and we did our first deal with him. So it's just, it's, you know, there's a great book called getting the money. And in that book, she talks about how you can't be Superman, meaning you can't be like hidden, right? You can't be Clark Kent. You can't not let people know what you want to do. So once we started saying, this is what we want to do right? We started just blasting it out there to everybody, right? And just having that conversation. Right. And it wasn't more than two months until the deal found us. And that was three years ago. And since then, we've done eight deals for $150 million, raised over $40 million in, in private capital. Wow. And it's just, you know, it's, you know, we, we believe in sowing and reaping and what you so in, into the world is what you'll reap. And that's yeah. um, that's exactly what happened. We really started talking and being intentional about what space we wanted to be in.
1: And it just, it came to us. Right. That, that's super cool. And I was just thinking, of, I was just doing the math in my head. You went from doing uh, about 10 deals-ish a month, doing 150 per, per year on the flipping wholesaling side. Then you go to the commercial side and you're doing, you said, eight in three years, which is about- two-ish per year, which is crazy to think about because obviously the commercial deals, they sometimes take a lot longer, take a lot more due diligence, but they're worth a lot more money. So it kind of, it's it's just funny how um, those numbers kind of play out.
0: Choose your hard, right? I mean, we had, you know, it was hard to run that wholesale business because we had a big team. We had to spend a lot of money to get there. Like, This is a different business, but our focus is education now, educating investors that they're able to even invest in these types of deals. Most people don't even know that they can. Educating people about the tax advantages, how we went from paying almost seven figures in taxes to no taxes over the last couple of years. Um, Just educating, right? So now it's just having the conversation about what it is that we do, how you can do it. And, you know, we're also having the conversations with people that, yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll do two deals this year. Right. One will be a $50 million project. The other will be a $42 million project, um, you know, to acquire hundred million dollars in properties
1: in a, in a year, it would have taken us decades right? in the single <laughs> Literally, family space. Yeah. Right. That's, that's definitely an interesting way to think about it. And practically just look at the two different options. You could do hundreds of single family units, or you could do just a couple of larger commercial units. That's interesting. I
0: think a lot of us entrepreneurs start grinding in the beginning because we feel like we have to grind and burn ourselves out to feel some level of success. And I did the same thing, right? right? It's only people that I find that are pretty successful that change that mindset to think about one thing and one thing only, and that's return on time invested. How much time can I, how little time can I invest for the maximized investment? Right. right. Once you start thinking on that level, then you know, that $10,000 wholesale, that took you six weeks, might not be worth it anymore. Right? right. And and that's that's the dichotomy. And that's where you have to figure out what business you want to be in and what your goals are personally for your life.
1: Right. No, it makes total sense. So you you did that first self-storage deal that we mentioned. You had a mentor/slash partner that you that you partnered on the deal with. What was kind of the next steps? Because I know you mentioned you had a partner in the flipping business. Was he on the yeah? Did, so did we're still partners. Of, Okay. Mm-hmm. You guys kind of yeah. moved up together. So then w- what have you guys been doing after this storage deal? What was kind of next for you guys?
0: Well, so we did the first storage deal. And as we were breaking ground on that, a sign went up across the street that's at a hundred thousand square feet of self-storage. <laughs> so that was a problem, right? Now we have a competitor that's building a very large complex right across the street. <laughs> so strategically we went out and raised another $2 million and bought that piece of land from the owner. And then that started our second project, which was a covered RV and boat storage um, facility. And um, that turned out to be a blessing, but it was a shock in the beginning. So we went right from our first deal into our second deal. And once we had that deal raised, we got approvals on a third self-storage complex right down the street. So, you know, we were head down raising money for about a year and a half for just those storage deals. Wow, And then um, it built our net worth pretty significantly, pretty quickly. And we said, all right, so let's go buy and operate a deal ourselves. So we did, we went into Columbus, Ohio. We looked at a bunch of deals. We ended up buying a 66 unit complex, which was a little bit on the small side from what our mentors were telling us, but we knew the broker and we knew that this would be a great way to break into that market. We like Columbus. Um,
1: And this is multifamily,
0: right? This is a multifamily complex. Yep. Yeah. And so we bought that, um, repositioning it. We bought another 84 unit in Columbus and then we bought 120 units in Dallas and tomorrow we're closing on, uh, the 384
1: units in. Sweet. Awesome. Super exciting yeah. stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so do you, do you recommend, cause you know, you have a, you have a unique perspective you've been through the all the single family, the wholesaling, the realtor, the broker, all that good stuff. And now you're doing, you're fully submerged in the commercial. Do you suggest that somebody goes straight for commercial? Or do you think it's beneficial that they start with single family? Obviously, it depends for every single person, but do you think that your experience helped you propel? Or do you think, you know, two years would have been good? Or, you know, what, what, what's your take on it? So there's no
0: doubt that we learned a lot of skills and growth and accountability through that first business that is helping propel us faster in this business. Right. Yeah. So there's no love lost on the previous businesses or the time, effort and energy that we put into them. That said, <clears throat> if I had to do it again and I knew where I was going and I didn't, when we started, I just knew right. I liked real estate. So um <laughs> I, I, I couldn't have necessarily jumped right into multifamily because I didn't really understand it at the time. But let's assume that that wasn't true. Let's assume I was listening to this podcast and I said, hey, multifamily sounds like the way to go. And I started reading and listening about multifamily and decided that was the way to go. Um, there's nothing to say that you can't start there, right? There's actually, um, on Facebook right now, I'm friends with a guy, his name is Tim Mai, M-A-I. He's a big... Um, he's a big multifamily syndicator and investor. Um, And him and a couple of friends started a high school group for 17, 18 and 19 year olds. that are underwriting deals, multifamily deals for free with their help to try to get them their first multifamily deal by the time they go to college. Wow! And it's just, it's your purview, right? It's like, what is your lens? If your lens is multifamily, if your lens is raising capital, then there's no reason that you can't get into it. But again, you're going to need some mentorship. You're going to need to around the people that are doing it to teach you the right ways to do that but there's no reason you can't start there
1: right okay that makes sense so uh, i just had a good question that came out of my mind with um starting out in multi-family I i had a really good question i wanted to ask you but uh i'll get back to it so with raising capital this is what it was all about for your deals talk about how you structure the capital raise portion of it, syndication, joint ventures, and kind of explain the difference between the two. Or if you use a different method that I didn't mention, uh, I think you can explain that.
0: Yeah. So when we started, it was all syndications, which basically means raising a bunch of money from a bunch of different investors into a particular deal. And, um, you know, our first deal $4 million raise, probably 32 investors, right? So, syndication simply means that we're going to split up work and split up capital and you know many hands make light work right so um so we've done all of our deals as syndications our joint venture has typically been now and so it started here and it has landed here again and i'll get back to this but our joint venture partners are the operators so we operated three deals in the in the middle right so we built three storage facilities. We didn't operate those. We were just the capital, but we were 50-50 partners. And then we went and built, bought these other deals where we were the operator and the capital. And we owned more of the deal, but we had to operate those deals, which is a whole other job, by the way. Um, (laughs) So I felt like I built myself another job by accident. We went from flipping to doing this back to like large scale flipping almost. Right. So now like the 384 units, we're partnered with an institutional operator who's got a billion dollars under management, 7,000 units. We're the capital, but we're still 50-50 partners. But he focuses on asset property and construction management. We focus on the capital. We like those lanes. So that's where our business has landed and that's where we'll stay. So we'll probably start a fund now um, so that we can kind of discretionarily use that into deals that we want to get into. But um, in terms of the capital, that's where we started. And then that's kind of how it, um, it's kind of gotten to a place where now all we do is focus on the capital through syndications, through funds or fund of funds and directly invest into a operational partner, partner's deal where we sit on both the general partnership and the limited partnership side.
1: Gotcha. Okay, so that's something I'm super interested in. I've had other people on this podcast kind of talk about that model where they're basically the capital raisers. They partner with experienced operators. Uh, you, you know, even though you yourself is are an experienced operator, part still partnering with people who have more experience, um, and I guess enjoy that, enjoy that piece more. Um, yeah. So it's a super interesting model. So let me ask you this. I guess from what I've heard from people who do something similar, they partner with people who might have a couple hundred units, might have, might have a thousand units, but I haven't heard anybody partnering with instant institutional type investors. Yeah. So I guess my, I mean, I have a lot of questions about it. Um, where do I even begin? So first and foremost, why do these people, these institutional investors, not why do they need your money, but why, I, you know what I'm saying? Why you, why yeah, great you? Question. You know, I, uh, there's so many questions thrown in one, but I guess yeah. like, why is the? You're not the first it? person
0: to ask that question. <laughs> um, so there's, a, there's a long winded answer and there's a shorter one. So the, the short answer is, um, institutional operators that have historically been funded by hedge funds and wall street, <clears throat> they, um, they don't like necessarily the transactional business of it, right? Because we're all human beings and we all yearn for human connection. So I met this operator seven years ago at a Harvard club breakfast in Manhattan, eating eggs that I couldn't afford, talking about what he did because I wanted to get into this space. So I just wanted to understand, I was in the single family space, I wanted to understand what a sponsor was, I wanted to understand how private equity ruled the world of this, like... (laughs) how did it all work? So I just went to this breakfast and I sat next to this guy who had a billion dollars of assets under management. And he'd been in business for 30 years at the time. And I was like, it's a private company too. Like, how do you get funded by Wall Street? And you know, he laid it all out for me. And we just kept in touch. Every time I did a deal, I emailed him, Hey, this is what, what we're doing. Hey, I like that. Congratulations. Let me know how it goes. And we've just built a relationship over time. And after he saw us do the last hundred million dollars in deals, he was like, what are you guys doing? Let's, let's talk about doing a deal together. And our capital structure is a little bit different than wall street. Um, I won't, I won't get too much into the weeds here, but you know, uh, wall street is typically looking for 18 to 20% per annum returns. Really wow. Right. So that means that the operators have to give the lion's share of the equity to them to do that, which, is just how they've been trained and that's fine. But then Wall Street carves out a nice portion for themselves and gives their (laughs) investors about 6%. Right. Yep. So um, I run a podcast called Free From Wall Street. We're a a little bit railing against what (laughs) Wall Street does because I don't think that they help investors really create generational wealth when they can. They have the ability, they have the, the vehicles to do it. Um, but they don't, they arbitrage and fee to death, and then they give five, 6% returns to investors and the operator isn't making what the operator should be making. And wall street is getting really rich, right? Right. So our capital structure is a little bit different. We pass more of those, um, returns onto our investors, right? So they get higher returns than wall street. And then we split the uh, general partnership with our deal with our partners 50-50, but it's a bigger piece of the pie, right? So because we're direct to consumer, not through a Wall Street um, mutual fund, it's a little bit different. So they like our capital structure better, but it's really it's relationship, right? Why do people work together? Because
1: they know like yeah. and trust you. Got it. Okay, that makes perfect sense. So can you walk through a sample sample scenario of what it would look like? on your your um, operational partner side he comes to you and says hey i've got a 300 unit i got a whatever and we need you know i need x amount of money can you kind of talk about how that looks on his side when he brings a yep. deal and then what you then do on your end so a couple a couple of cool things that happen when you
0: partner with a group like this right is they see deal flow that i would never see nobody's bringing steven and integrity holdings group a 42 million dollar acquisition I mean, maybe in a couple of years, right? Maybe in a decade or so, but not right now. I mean, I have hundred million dollars under management, $42 million project. Like (laughs) it's a little bit out of our purview, right? But they see a lot of these deals and most of those type deals are off market. So between five and $15 million, that space is crowded, right? There's a lot of people chasing those deals. 40 million, 60 million, 80 million, air's a little thinner up here. The guys that can execute on those deals are the people that brokers bring them to. Um, So, so that's number one. The cool thing that happens is we start seeing really cool deal flow and consistently. I've had to turn down four deals from this group because I can't fund them right now because we're still working on the capital raise side. Wow. So great problem to have, right? Um, (laughs) but we want to get there too. We want to solve for that problem. So what happened on this deal? He said, Hey, I have this deal. It's a $42 million acquisition. I need you to bring $12.2 million to the deal. I'll leave a million dollars in leaving you a net 11 to, to bring to the deal for that. We'll give the limited partners X, right? That's what they're going to make. The general partner will make Y and we'll split Y 50, 50 and I will do the asset management. I will do the property management. I'll do the construction management. Here's my team. Here's the reporting that we give you. Like it is all laid out in a very transparent and accountable way. Wow. So we underwrite them. We underwrite the deal. We underwrite the sponsor. We underwrite the demographics. We, you know, we do our own internal analysis as to whether or not the deal that they presented us checks, all of our investor boxes that we require. And then it did. And then we said, yeah, you know, we'll, Here's our letter of intent to perform on this deal with you. And here's our closing date and let's get legal involved. And they start writing up the operating agreements and things like that. And then we start hitting the phones.
1: Gotcha, okay. So a couple of questions. When you, I guess for, for the returns for your investors, let's, let's start there. Are they promised or guaranteed any returns If yes or no, what do those look like? What do they expect to make? How how does that portion look?
0: The SEC frowns upon the word guarantee. Yeah, right. (laughs) So no, they are not guaranteed anything, right? Investments all have inherent risk and you need to understand the risk of that investment when you go into it. Um, That said, we structure our return profiles to our investors as a preferred return. Meaning... In the operating agreement, it states that the cash flow needs to go towards expenses first, right? the property expenses, then the net operating income goes towards the debt service. Then it pays the preferred returns to the investors, and then the operators are paid out. They're distributed last. Not every operator does this. That's how we do it. Our uh, investors make a preferred return across the board. So... Some guys have equity splits at the end where it's like, here's a preferred return and then an equity split. We structure the entire return deal by deal at a um, predetermined number that is in a preferred position. So I have to be a little vague about this because we haven't um, opened up the fund yet. So I can't speak to consistently how our returns are done because we don't have a 506C exemption yet. Got it. But- that is how we structure all of our deals to where our investors are always in a preferred position, meaning us as the operators, we eat last, they eat first um, and they know what that is going into the deal.
1: Gotcha. Okay. And then do they also get a portion of the equity as well?
0: We don't do that.
1: Then, Okay. Got it.
0: Yep. So we haven't done that. Um, you know, we're looking at it, but we, we have a very high pref, right? Yeah. So um, because of that high floor, there's also a ceiling. Right, Um, it's a trade-off. Well, what it does is it mitigates downside risk. Most of our investors are not looking for home runs. They're looking for the three (laughs) things that we um, are very much focused on with our own capital, which is one, preservation of capital. How do I not lose money? Two, return of capital. How do I get my money back and what are the exit plans? Return on investment is number three, right? regardless of what number three is, what number that is, they're both, it's all irrelevant if you can't do number one and two. So our investors that come to us are typically looking for more stability and consistency in their return profile, not being able to hit a triple or a home run on some deals. And for that, they're willing to trade that upside benefit to mitigate their downside risk.
1: Got it. Okay. Makes total sense. So on on a day-to-day basis because it's still crazy to think about. I know know this is common with commercial, but the volume of deals goes down. Obviously, when there is a deal on the table, there's a lot of work and time that goes into it. But so what does your actual day-to-day look like? So you're responsible for the capital raising, right? So I guess, what what does your day-to-day look like? And maybe throw in some tips of capital raising too. Yeah. So have you read EOS? I have not, no. Traction, rocket fuel? I've heard, I've heard of them, but haven't read them yet.
0: Okay. So, when you're building a business, right, the format of your business is important. So, we run the EOS system, which is Entrepreneur Operating System. If you read Traction or Rocket Fuel, Gino Wickman, it, it lays out kind of how you do meetings and like what's a very efficient way to run your business. Um, I bring that up because in part of that is creating what they call an accountability chart, where basically you lay out all of the roles of the business and all of the people that fit in those roles. So the short answer is I sit in too many seats right now, but I'm the visionary in the business. So I talk about big ideas. We whale hunt. We focus on um, doing like uh, team meetings that help keep people accountable and pumped up about where where the vision is. And our vision and mission is not predicated on dollar amount, right? We actually have a donor advised fund that is attached to our business where a percentage of all profits and proceeds go into a donor advised fund. And we give to nonprofits around the world to, um, to make some kind of impact. And you know, we'll give over a million dollars away over the next three years through this fund. And our whole team is bought into the idea that this is why we do what we do, right? So number one is get your why, understand what that is. But um, I say all of this because my day-to-day is being restructured right now. And my role has been visionary, but it's also been more on the investor side where I'm talking to investors, talking to them about the opportunities, doing the webinars, having the one-on-one phone calls, things like that. Also creating the content, right? We have the podcast and the YouTube channel and things like that. So that's kind of been my day to day. It's a lot of uh, getting on webinars, talking about deals, educating people that don't know that they can get into this space, telling them about who we are, why we do what we do, understanding what their uh, investment goals are and do those goals align, right? So that's, so capital raise tips, number one is when you're doing that is you're not selling anything, right? You don't have anything to sell. You have an opportunity for people to partake in. If they say no, that's fine. If they say no, you probably haven't done a good job educating them on why they like these deals. So it's really understanding yourself why you personally would want to invest in multifamily real estate. And I always tell our uh, clients this, like we're investors first. What I'm about to tell you is what (laughs) I learned over years that made me stop flipping a thousand houses and doing this. Right. And, you know, that education is invaluable people don't know that they can do it so we get to educate them it's a win-win right if they decide to invest with us so it's um it's mostly just creating the content that people need to, to hear right and building your network and getting out there and talking to people about why it is you do what you do and see if right. your if your um missions align right you don't you know seth godin always talks about build your tribe right in this business you don't need a lot of people if, if if everybody gives you $100,000, right, and you have 2,000 investors, you're in good shape, right? You yeah. bought almost a billion dollars <laughs> with a property. right? So it's really just finding your tribe, figuring out what your why is and seeing how they align with people. So capital raise right. tip or not. I mean, the, the logistics of what that looks like or, you know, there's backend stuff, but the, the reality is that people invest in you because they know, like, and trust you. And you have to get in front of people, you have to know your why, you have to tell them why uh, you're investing in those things and then offer the opportunity to them.
1: Right, so uh, you know, getting in front of them, obviously you mentioned social media, podcast, YouTube, um, I'm sure Facebook or LinkedIn have some role in that, but actually getting, so this, this is a place that I'm in and I think a lot of investors are in this position or at least have been, is you now we're posting all these cool things we're doing on social media. They everyone associates us or knows us as the real estate. He's he's a real estate guy, he's doing something, you know, but then actually going for the, I guess, for the ask or the sharing of the opportunity. I mean, that's one part that is always kind of blurry at the end is how do you actually make that step, like actually practically make that step and say, Hey, I actually am looking for, you know, more investors to for this deal or. Just telling people that you're actually looking for capital, because sometimes people are like, oh, you're doing some cool real estate stuff, but they don't even know that it's a possibility. So my question is, how do you actually take that next step? Once everyone in your network knows that you're the real estate guy, you go ahead and you're not asking for capital, but you're telling them that there's an opportunity for them. Yeah.
0: If you want to prime the pump, I'd get a little bit further ahead of it. Right. And before you even have the opportunity, right make them sign up for like an Aweber form or a MailChimp form, right? Have them sign up somewhere on your website so that you capture their name and their number and why they are interested in talking to you, right? And then you can have that phone call beforehand and say, well, what are you looking for? And understand what their investment goals are. Right. I think we all do this too, right? We all find a deal and then we go chase the money. And everybody always used to tell me like, hey, when when the deal is right, the money will come. Well, I'll tell you right now, (laughs) I've, I've raised a lot of money in a short period of time and I've always been chasing because we had a deal under contract. Right. People feel that, right? Like that's, that's when it becomes a sales pitch and you, you can learn some sales tactics to make it not feel like that. But the bottom line is you need money and you need to close on a certain date. Right. And it gets, uh, it creates a lot of stress. So, get in front of that curve, right? Talk to the people, ask them where their head is at. If you had a deal like the last one you just completed that showed these types of returns, would you be interested? Yes. How much money would you be interested for if I sent you a commitment form, would you give me a soft commitment before we had a deal? Now you can start to track some of the money that you have on the sidelines. And then your posts on social media can just drive traffic without asking for anything. Just Hey, go sign up here so I can let you guys know when I have another deal. And I know that you're interested and that kind of consistency will get in front of people where they can go, Oh yeah, I'll sign up a a little bit, uh, deeper is to have some kind of magnet there, right? Like, Hey, take my, and you can go to my website. You can go to integrity HG and see this. You, You can sign up for a couple of things there. You can sign up for our monthly newsletter there. You can sign up for our seven day passive investor, um, course, which is just a seven day email drip course that tells you what to do as a passive investor, what questions to ask, what to look out for. And then third is you can sign up for the investor club, which I'm going to ask you some more detailed questions, but you're going to be able to see the next deal that I have. Right. So first and foremost, I wouldn't go to social media and say, Hey, I'm looking for more investors for this deal. Cause you you might not be able to, depending on the SEC exemption. Right. Right. Um, So to get in front of that a little bit is to just create whatever your email list is, right? AWeber has a great little form that you can plug into pretty much anywhere, right? Even into Facebook, um, where they just fill out their name, phone number, email address, and a couple of notes. And you can ask a couple of questions. And then now you're starting to create that
1: database of people that are interested in hearing from you. Right. That's uh, a pretty smart way of doing it. (laughs) That's definitely something I'm gonna need to to think about and, and actually implement because what I did is when I, <laughs> I, I, I kind of did the, Oh crap. I mean, I, you know, I need some money for a deal and it's never, I mean, that's the, the feeling of that first is like, is awful. Cause it's like, Oh, I, I knew I should have been doing something first. So what I did is I, and I don't think it was in a salesy way. Cause I didn't show my desperation, I guess at the time, but I just sent out an email to my, my database that I've just collected over past like a year or so. And basically said, you know, it, I called it like the, you know, 2021 update or, you know, something with me that, that what what's new with me kind of thing. And basically telling people what I've been doing and wh- which kind of what direction I'm going and saying Hey, if anyone's a private lender or, you know, named out what I needed, let me know. We're working on a bunch of projects down the road. So okay. I, I talked to a few people, got a few people that were interested and was able to get something going quick <laughs> sooner than later. Cause I've already had the previous relationship, yeah. but I think doing, <clears throat> yeah, so did like you, you pay said, those people back? Yes. Okay. Yeah. All
0: right. You can yeah. do a little masterclass, right? So, <laughs> <clears throat> all right. So now go back to those people and get testimonials from them, written and video, if you can, even through zoom. Hey, you know, why did you invest with me? What did you like about the investment? Did you get paid what you were supposed to get paid? Would you invest again? Right? Just what do you do for a living? Focus on them as the investor. What makes them pull the trigger, right? Get those testimonials, put them up on your page. Send those testimonials to that same database. Hey, this investor made $13,758 over six months by investing with me. Here's their testimonial, right? Right. Um, and now you just, so now you have data. Now you can go back to that group and say, here's how we made out on that last bunch of deals we did, right? Right. If you're interested in becoming a private lender, you're interested in making these types of returns, sign up here, right? Or reply to this email, whatever. And then, then you know, so now you start to create that data set. And then, you know, have you ever, ever read Never Split the Difference? I I think I listened to that on audiobook. Yeah, listen to it seven times more.
1: Yeah, because it's
0: fantastic. It's just a fantastic sales book. Um, but what you can do is you can go back to that da- database and get people to self-select by not telling them what you need from them. Right? You Explain can say, that? you can say, hey guys, just so you know, I have this opportunity that I'm you know, I'm under contract on this project. It, let's let's just say it's a flip, right? $100,000, uh, $20,000 rehab, we're going to sell for 200 grand. So I need $125,000 or $130,000, whatever you need to co- cover some of your upfront costs. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to be offering out 12% interest per annum, right? And we're going to be paying a point a month while your capital is deployed. We need to close in the next 45 to 60 days. Do you know anybody that might be interested? Not are you interested, right? It's a little nuance, but it creates a big mental shift because you're not coming to vote.
1: Right.
0: If I said, Bailey, can I have that cup behind you? Your immediate reaction is no, right? Right. Because people like to say no. So by asking them if they know anybody, it gets them to start thinking like, do I know anybody? Well, why not me? Right. And then they self-select. Right. I did this on a two and a half million dollar private lender deal. I sent this deal out multiple times and they're in my database, but I knew that these people had some cash and I knew they were sitting on it and I needed two and a half million dollars in two weeks for a 334 unit complex that I was foreclosing on and then flipping. Wow. So I emailed them and I said, Hey, I know this is kind of out of the blue, but. I have this project that I bought for $2.6 million. I have a backend contract for $5.5 million. They already have an earnest money deposit here. I have two other backup offers here. I've done all the title work here, here, and here. So pretty secure deal. This is what I'm offering to a private lender. Do you know anybody? <laughs> Within 10 minutes, <laughs> I got an email back that said, we would be interested in this. When can we jump on a call? Yeah. Right? And... It was the fastest money I've ever raised, but I did a good job of laying out the opportunity and I didn't ask them. I asked if they knew anybody. Right. So just, just little tips and tricks, right. From sales tactical type things. Um, But then when people come back to you and say, yeah, I'm interested. Great. You get it funded. And then the next person says, yeah, I'm interested. Hey, you know what? We already got that funded, but I'm going to keep you on my list for next time. Would you be interested in this type of deal next time? Now you're stacking your list, right? Now you have more and more people that you know are ready to pull the trigger so that when the next deal comes up, you you know how much money you have.
1: Right. Okay. Very. That's great tip. Let me ask this: Is that is the? Do you know anybody? Is that? I guess you could do that face to face if you're having a conversation with somebody. Of course. yeah. But is that also something that you post out either on? Um, you know, like you said, you have to be careful with regulations, and it's best not to chase it for a specific deal. But is yeah. that something you also post on social media or? you send out an email, Hey, I'm always looking. you know, we're looking for more investors. If you know anybody who might be interested in making solid um, 8% preferred returns, let me know. Is that something you post or is that more of just a conversation? BC so I don't post anything with
0: percentages. Yeah. Right? The sec frowns upon that. So, you know, if I'm going to post something, I would just say, Hey, I have a deal. I'm looking for a private lender. Um, who do you know that might be doing some private lending DM me for details Got right? it. or a private message me for the interest rate? You know, I, I used to say that stuff too. I used to go live in a video and be like, Hey, so I have this deal. We're buying it for this, we're putting this into it. We're selling it for this. Um, I need this much money for it. And the sec is not going to let me say online how much I can pay you. So just private message me. I'll tell you what the interest rate is. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then more people will just reach out because of curiosity than anything else. Right. right. Like, How much are you paying? <laughs> right. And then, right. But it works. It's just, right. you know, it, you can be funny about it. Like, but yeah, I just be careful about putting um, rates of return out there.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, good, good. That's a very good tip. Very cool. So is there any, before we move on to the next section of our show, is there any last piece you want to mention that we have not covered? Any last tips or anything? No, I, you know, I think there's, there's so
0: much that goes into building these types of businesses. Right. And it's, um, it's hard to focus down on any one thing. Obviously, we touched on mentors. But I'll tell you, the person that I am today would not have been able to create the business that we run today. Or the person that I was when I started wouldn't be able to right. run the business that we have today. Um, you know, so if growth and accountability isn't a core value of yours, at least make it a sub value, right? Like <laughs> you need to You need to have a library of books. Like this is one of four bookcases I have in my office. Um, I went to school for sociology at Boston University and hated reading, hated taking tests, but it was because I wasn't reading the right stuff. My passion, my interest was business and real estate and like, how do I create wealth and how do I pay less taxes? And those are the things that really like get me excited. Um, And there's so many books out there to really help cut the learning curve. So get around people that are smarter than you, that are doing it. Try to add value to them before you ask them for anything, which can be a little bit of a caveat because people that are smarter than you typically don't have a lot of value that you can give to them, but um, you know, try in some form or fashion to get around the right people and ask them some advice in terms of what books are they reading? What are they doing financially? How are they setting themselves and their families up for generational wealth? But be a growth oriented person, your mindset, is absolutely your lid on how far you're going to go in life. And, you know, I was terrified when I wrote that deposit check for the first wholesale, (laughs) I I was really scared. And your level of what you can handle in life will absolutely change based on the types of situations that you put yourself in, you know, raising $12.2 million over the last four months to close a $42 million project is quadruple the deal that we did before that right you know and it's literally a hundred times bigger than some deals that i've done in the past so um, just that growth mindset i think is so important for people and it's not like a nuanced type of oh yeah let me get some like ethereal knowledge no i mean like go get some books read them and apply that stuff you know what i
1: mean Right, right right cool love it love it steven so we're now going to move on to the next section of our show, which is the big four. And this is where we ask all of our guests the same four questions. So number one, what's your number one habit for success?
0: My number one habit for success.
1: Um,
0: honestly, I, I would have to say for me personally, and this is going to vary for everybody, right? But for me personally, it's, uh, it's prayer. So, you know, I, I believe in the power of prayer. I believe that our business is exactly where we're supposed to be because, you know, God is CEO of our business and we kind of help steward that business. Um, and you know, I think that there's a humility that comes along with prayer that is required to have a, a real successful business. And it makes you look at things that you don't know everything. Uh, and we certainly don't. And, you know, we, uh, we seek out on those things. So
1: awesome. 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 Question number two for you, Stephen, are limiting beliefs, their thoughts in our heads that hold us back from realizing our potential. What's one limiting belief that you were able to crush and how did that impact your life?
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think making the switch from single family to multifamily and commercial, um, was something that we didn't really know that we could do. Right. And, you know it's kind of is intertwined with number 1 but when you have faith you you tend to not allow your limiting belief to hold you where you're at you know it, it would have been very easy for us to stay in a multi million dollar a year business and been comfortable enough you know to say we built ourselves a job and I don't have to work for anybody I don't have to answer to anybody but getting to that next level was going to require some faith. It was going to be a leap of faith. And, you know, we, we were not sure if we were going to be able to get it done. Um, we didn't know if we'd be able to raise 4 million bucks, but fast forward
1: 30 months later, and we've raised 40 million bucks. Right. It's incredible. Incredible. So where do you see yourself in five, either yourself or your business in five to 10 years?
0: Yeah, so I mean, I think we're still going to be operating this business. I think I will sit much more in an owner and visionary box um, with a team kind of built out. But I expect that in the next three to five years, we'll have over a billion dollars of assets under management. And we'll be giving somewhere between 30 and 40% of our income that comes in through the business through our donor advice fund. Our goal, by the way, is 10 years to give 90% of every deal that comes in through a donor advised funds wow. can really make an impact on the world. But right now we're sitting at between uh, 10 and 20% per deal. Um, I expect in the next three to five years, we'll be able to get that number to, you know, 30, 40%, maybe, maybe 50%.
1: That's a, that's a big, very generous chunk. It's <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Yeah. So question number four, what's one piece of software technology that you use in your business that you could not live without? Oh, so probably Active Campaign.
0: So we use Active Campaign to manage all of our uh, incoming um, signups, right, and funnels and automations. So email automations, text automations, things like that. Scheduling my calendar and then sending out our email blasts to let people know about our newsletter, about our new deals, about what's going on in the next deal. So that's a um, that's been a really great tool for us, you know, just in terms of communication, because we, we really feel like communication is a big piece of the business to the investor.
1: Definitely. And it sounds like with you managing all these different investors, you definitely need something very sophisticated to keep track of everything or else that would be your full time job is to send an email. So that's definitely yeah, important. Exactly. The so last thing, Stephen, where can the listeners get a hold of you?
0: Yeah. So if you uh, want to listen to our podcast, you can go to Free from Wall Street. Um, that's the name of our podcast. Or you can go to our website, integrityhg.com, and uh, sign up for our investor club, listen to some podcasts. You can watch our YouTube videos from there. So we're all over.
1: Okay. Awesome. Well, Stephen, it was a pleasure not only meeting you face to face, but hearing your story from start to you know running the wholesale, being a broker, doing the flips to fast forward where you are today you know, crazy growth in the commercial space and huge, huge plans to come. So super excited to watch you grow. I know you're going to definitely hit your goals because you you have that vision. No doubt you're going to get there. And just want to say, Stephen, thanks again for coming on the show.
0: Thanks, Bailey. It was fun. Thank you for listening to the Real Estate Investing Made Simple podcast. For more resources or to connect with us further, please visit our website, www.baileykramer.com.